Do you know of a Klingon proverb that says that revenge is a dish best served cold? Well, it is very cold in Ukraine. Find out exactly what the heck I'm talking about on this episode of Delicious History. Delicious History is a weekly podcast designed to show how food has played a direct role in our history. For more information, you can visit DaveMilitello.com slash podcast or check out our Instagram or Facebook pages at Delicious History Podcast. Why is it that revenge is such a common theme throughout our literature? Well, it could be because revenge is one of our basest human emotions. I would say that would include love, loss, redemption, and of course, revenge. But I don't know about you, I don't really consider myself someone who has a large amount of enemies, uh, and of the ones I do have, and you know who you are, I don't think I've ever really had any plans for revenge uh, for when I've been wronged. Well, at least none I'd like to share publicly on a podcast. And yet, revenge has this great appeal to me, with many of my favorite pieces of literature revolving around this idea. Uh, My favorite book is The Count of Monte Cristo. Um, And although it's way too long, Moby Dick also has a special place in my heart. I mean, seriously, Herman Melville, you could probably distill the story down to like 50, 60 pages maximum if you stopped wasting so much time telling us about how whales should be classified or how whales have been depicted in wood and metal and statues over the years. Listen, if I want to watch someone ramble on about stupid whale facts, I just have a conversation with myself. Of course, you can't mention Moby Dick in the modern world without mentioning one of my favorite movies and the motivation of both the title of this episode as well as the amazing introduction. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. This is another great story of revenge, one of a man who was left on a dead planet for decades and takes it out on the crew of the Enterprise. One of my favorite moments in movie history is Khan Singh. He quotes perhaps one of the best lines in all of Moby Dick. From hell's heart. I stab at thee, for hate's sake, I spit my last breath at thee. And then he blows up. I mean, that's really not the point, but you know what I'm saying. That's why whenever we look at history and we see themes like love, loss, redemption, and revenge, these are the stories and events that really stick with us. Along the lines of making history, I just want to mention something that in my opinion, is one of the greatest sins that we've committed in our past. That has to do with women. See, for the vast majority of human existence, women have often been relegated to lesser roles in society. They've been expected to care for the home and bear our children, but all the while living a life that makes it hard to be remembered for future generations. I remember being cut off by a Subaru one day that had a bumper sticker on the back that said, well-behaved women rarely make history. And that's certainly the case. I mean, for every Catherine the Great, there's probably like 500 men that had their name chronicled simply because they were at the right place at the right time. So whenever we do happen upon a woman who makes history, you can be sure that it's probably for something pretty big. This is especially true for the time period that we're talking about, the early Middle Ages. This time period is well after the Roman Empire fell, but also well before the Italian Renaissance. 
as a whole, this was certainly not known as prime time to be a lady. While some areas had more rights for women than others, it would pale in comparison to what we see even today. Case in point, the protagonist of our story today, Olga of Kiev. Olga of Kiev certainly falls into that category of misbehaving women playing a big role throughout history, and because of that, are remembered to our day. Before we start her story, I just want you to understand that she is a saint in both the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox traditions. And that's going to be something interesting to remember as we look into how she performs some of the most epic revenge ever recorded. Something else to remember about Olga of Kiev is that everything we know about her is pure action with little to no preamble. You simply just start in the action and go from there. Let's start with her birth. According to historians at the time, it really didn't matter when she was born, but she got married to Igor of Kiev at approximately 940 CE. Igor was the leader of what was known as Kievian Rus, which is what would today encompass parts of Ukraine, Belarus, and Western Russia itself. This was not a nation per se, but rather a confederation of local principalities and tribes, with Igor as the political and military head. These were really Vikings when it comes down to it, and most of the time they spent raiding the Byzantines, because the Byzantines were the richest and most prosperous nation in the area. Now, at the time of Olga's birth and early life, this area was not yet Christianized. Again, the biggest rival of them was the Christian Byzantine Empire. Now, this is an important point, especially when we talk about her later life. Now, it appears that Olga and Igor had a relatively happy marriage and had a son by the name of Sviatoslav. But soon after Sviatoslav's birth, Igor had a problem. One of the tribes that was part of his confederation, known as the Drevlians, decided that they really didn't want to play ball like they did before. They had fought alongside Igor's predecessors and even made an arrangement to pay tribute, but now were instead paying tribute to local warlords and not giving the same support as before. Igor thought, well, this isn't going to do, and showed up to the doorstep with a relatively large army. Diplomacy prevailed, as it often does when staring down the barrel of a gun, and the Drevlians decided that they would go back to paying like they used to. Happy with the outcome, Igor left the city and headed back towards Kiev, but then for some reason he figured that he could probably get a better deal, and he went back on his own. He decided to send the majority of his army on their way back to Kiev, while he went back to give the Drevlians a second visit, but with a much smaller contingent of soldiers. Prince Mal, who was the head of the Drevlians, was quoted as saying, quote, If a wolf come among the sheep, he will take away the whole flock one by one, unless he is killed. If we do not thus kill him now, he will destroy us all. Uh, side note, so the guy's name is Prince Maul, right? Um, which I think is a Star Wars character, right? something like that. But in addition to that, in, in Western Europe, like the Romance languages of Spanish, Italian, whatnot, Maul is bad, like malo, mal. So basically we're starting off with an evil prince here, Prince Maul. Back to the story. Igor thought that he would walk out of these negotiations with more tribute, but the locals had different plans. They thought it would be better to strap him to two bent trees, and when the trees straightened out, well, let's just say there was twice as much Igor to love. With that, Sviatoslav had now ascended to the throne. But since he was a small child, it was decided that his mother would be his regent until he was of age. For those unaware of what a regent is, it's essentially someone who rules in place of someone else until that person's ready to rule themselves. 
This is very common throughout history in governments where leaders would be chosen through their bloodline rather than the will of the people, or conquest. Since leaders would often find themselves getting sick and dying, or having to go into battle, it wasn't uncommon for small children to find themselves in the hot seat before they were ready. A regent would often be a trusted advisor or a teacher, though it was also very common for a mother to have this role. As long as the mother in question was a capable woman, this would oftentimes be the best case scenario because there's probably no one else who would have a greater interest in the well-being of the future ruler as well as the peaceful handover of power than good old mom. And Olga fit that role perfectly. Although she was taking care of her son and making sure that he was getting the necessary training to become a fine leader in the future, she also wasn't afraid to take the reins of power in the short term. The biggest change that she made while in her position was reorganizing the way that tribute was paid from vassal states. Instead of said states paying local warlords who were entrusted to pay it to her government, Olga created a system in which her direct representatives would be the ones that would collect the tribute. I mean, but as interesting as that is, that's really not why we're here, right? If you wanted to know how little people thought about women back in the day, look no further than the way that Olga was treated by the man who killed her husband. Instead of ignoring her out of shame or guilt, or even attacking her to see a possible weakness as a leader, the Drevlians sent perhaps the most condescending proposal you can give to a woman in that situation. A proposal of marriage. Figuring that Olga was now desperate for a man since she was recently single, she received an offer of marriage from Prince Maul. He figured that since he had already taken down the leader, perhaps he could take the reins of power himself if he married the widow of Igor. So what did Olga do with this insulting offer? she accepted. Well, kinda. You see, it was expected that if a potential suitor wanted to stake his claim, then he would have to either come to Kiev personally or send representatives. In those days, these representatives would typically bring gifts and tell the potential future bride all the reasons why it would be a good idea to be married to their prince. Thankfully, we have some reputable sources for the actual quotes from the people involved in this story, thanks to the Primary Chronicle, also known as the Tales of Bygone Years, a text from the early 12th century. As we get going in the story, you'll understand why having quotations is so important. Well, I mean, well, not important, so much as fun. I mean, this is an awesome story. Anyway, so 20 negotiators arrived at Kiev to speak with Olga, and she said, quote, Your proposal is pleasing to me indeed, my husband cannot rise again from the dead, but I desire to honor you tomorrow in the presence of my people. Return now to your boat and remain there with an aspect of arrogance. I shall send for you on the morrow, and you shall say, We will not ride on horses nor go on foot. Carry us in our boat, and you shall be carried on your boat. I wish you could bring back on the morrow. It's just a beautiful little phrase. I mean, this sounded like a pretty good deal for these negotiators, right? Because not only did it sound like there wasn't much work for them to do to convince her to get married to Prince Maul, but now they were going to be carried on their boat like a pharaoh being brought to his palace. So they did exactly what they were instructed to do, and sure enough, the people came and picked them up on their boat and brought them to the court. But instead of a grand reception like they would have expected, they were greeted with a hole. Like literally a hole, as in somebody dug a trench about the same size of the boat. And no sooner did they see this trench than they were dropped into it and buried alive. As this was happening, Olga leaned down and asked, quote, whether they found the honor to their taste. That would have been bad enough for most people, but I'm hoping you'll understand that Olga of Kiev is not most people. 
Deciding that her thirst for revenge had not yet been quenched, she sent a letter back to the Drevlians, telling them to send, quote, their distinguished men to her in Kiev, so that she might go to their prince with due honor. And they did! I mean, of course, back in those days, but you know, this is before the internet and easy communication, so they had no idea what happened to that first group of 20 negotiators. Spoiler alert, things didn't go too well for this group either. Apparently, pretty excited that Olga was about to accept his proposal, Prince Mol sent some of his high-strength governors to take Olga from Kiev to Dereva, which is where his court was located. She put on the role as the perfect hostess and asked the men who had been traveling for a long time to bathe before they met her in her court. Well, that sounded reasonable since they'd been traveling such a long time. So they were led to a bathhouse, and just as soon as they were about to wash their nooks and crannies, she had the doors locked and the building burned to the ground. Believe it or not, this was just the appetizer of her revenge. Remember when we talked about Mad Honey in our first episode? Well, for those who haven't had the chance to listen to it, first of all, you're on notice. But second of all, Mad Honey is a type of honey that's been produced for thousands of years, where bees only have access to rhododendron flowers. Gryonotoxin, a compound found within the rhododendron nectar, is then concentrated within the honey and is known to have a variety of what some would call mostly negative effects on the human body. This includes a strong sense of intoxication like you would find when drinking too much alcohol, along with possible hallucinations, the inability to walk, severe diarrhea, can't forget that part, and possibly even death, depending on how much was ingested. With that in mind, Olga was now ready to serve the main entree in her plate of revenge. She sent another correspondence to the Dreblians and told them to, quote, Prepare great quantities of mead in the city where you killed my husband, that I may weep over his grave and hold a funeral feast for him. I mean, honestly, at this point, if you had even half a conscience, which I'm sure I have at least that, I would probably start to feel bad and maybe even say something, even just as a token to this lady, like, hey, uh, before we get married, I just want to say, like, you know, sorry for killing your husband and stuff. But apparently Prince Maul had even less of a conscience than that because he was totally eating all this up and actually prepared a big feast at the tomb where Olga's husband's body lay, in the city of Iskoristan. Much like a lot of historical events that happened before 1986, I obviously can't vouch for what happened here personally and the records can be kind of sketchy. But we'll do our best with the information that we have available to us. Apparently this feast was set up and Olga did go and weep over the body of her beloved Igor. But once that was over, the feast began and the mead was flowing. For those who aren't aware, mead is a type of honey wine that was very much enjoyed in Northern Europe at the time. You can still get it today, but it's certainly not as common as it used to be. It was often considered barbarian, since the Romans associated mead with areas that didn't have great production of wine and therefore were uncivilized. Regardless, it was considered an upper-class drink to the people who actually drank it because it's much more expensive to source the materials for mead than it would be for something like beer, which would just be leftover grain anyway. So to have a large celebration with a lot of people getting wasted on mead meant that you were probably a person of great means and trying to show off. Well, here's where we get to the tricky part, historically speaking. The one thing that we do know was that Prince Maul's men got blasted from drinking a ton of mead. The rumor was that the reason that Olga specifically requested to have mead at the feast was that she could swap it out with mead made from mad honey. So the story goes one of two ways. 
The first telling of the story is that of the Drevlian soldiers drinking way too much, while Olka soldiers were much more conservative or simply chose to drink water so as to keep their wits. The second story tells of Olga's men swapping up the mad honey mead for the Drevlian soldiers while they drank the regular mead, so as to make sure that these other soldiers would be out of their minds. Regardless of what actually happened, these soldiers were in no shape to fight, as they weren't expecting to anyway. I mean, after all, this was supposed to be the celebration of two nations coming together because of an act of marriage. Well, Olga didn't get the memo, as the historical record stated that she had her men kill about 5,000 of the Drevlians that night. Now, I want you to keep in mind, this was not a large nation, so that number mostly included a large number of civilians along with the soldiers. If you can believe it, Olga's revenge was still not over. She ended up going back to Kiev with her soldiers to prepare a large assault on the Drevlians. After about a year of siege on the capital city of Iskoristan, the people wanted to sue for peace. Thankfully, Olga was more than happy to oblige and wrote a letter saying, quote, why do you persist in holding out? All your cities have surrendered to me and submitted to tribute, so that the inhabitants now cultivate their fields and their lands in peace. But you had rather tied of hunger without submitting to tribute." Well, how nice! This was especially kind considering that this was the city where her husband was killed and yet here she was offering an olive branch. Understanding that the city had basically run out of food by being sieged for over a year, she only asked for one simple thing. Three pigeons and three sparrows from every house. Well, the people of the city really didn't understand the purpose of the request, thinking maybe her army needed some food, but were more than happy to oblige. But considering that this is Olga of Kiev, you can be sure that food was not on her mind. Once her army received the birds, Olga had her men place pieces of sulfur in cloth and attach each of these to the birds. At nightfall, she had them light the sulfur on fire and release the birds. You see, the reason that Olga specifically asked for these birds to come from individual homes was because, in a state of panic, these birds would go back to their nests. Keep in mind that back in those days, houses were basically made of nothing more than tinder, thatched roofs and wooden supports, and probably hay on the ground. As you might expect, with tens of thousands of flaming birds going back to their nests, the buildings quickly caught fire. One contemporary source stated that, quote, There was not a house that was not consumed, and it was impossible to extinguish the flames because all the houses caught fire at once. It's nearly impossible for us to understand just how much death and destruction this caused. While we had numbers for the amount of people that were killed because of Olga's actions before this, Basically, the entire city was decimated. Those that were able to escape alive were caught at the borders of the city by Olga's soldiers and were either slaughtered or made slaves with just a few being left being able to still pay tribute. <laughs> I mean, although this was not going to leave her with much of a tribute at all, since there was only a few people left, this was a lady on a mission. Something I want you to keep in mind after listening to this story is that, again, this woman was sainted. Not just that, but she was honored as being, quote, equal to the apostles in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Now, how they came to that really doesn't have to do with food, so I won't go into it in great detail. Basically, she converted to Christianity, though in true contemporary historian fashion, her reasons for doing so weren't considered important enough to write down. She later went to Constantinople to become baptized, and although she herself did not convert her nation, she saw to it that her grandson did. 
The reason for her sainthood has to do with the amount of souls that were saved on her watch, and not so much the amount of souls that were destroyed on her watch. In fact, she is the patron saint of converts and widows. Not just like the type of widow you would expect in a female remake of Taken, but you know, all widows. Just as a side note, I really don't think it matters, but I personally find it very interesting that most paintings or other artistic representations of Olga of Kiev give me less of a feeling of saintly reverence and more a feeling of, I think this lady's gonna kill me. Perhaps unsurprisingly, both the Orthodox and Catholic churches have gone out of their way to downplay the revenge part of her story and focus more on the conversion part, which is understandable. It wasn't until relatively recently that people really started taking a greater interest in this part of her story, uh, rather than the saintly part. Still, I have to say that this is my favorite story about how Mad Honey was possibly weaponized. While I don't have any current plans to do any more episodes on Mad Honey in the near future, don't think there won't be a part 3 sometime soon. This particular episode is dedicated to one of our listeners by the name of Eli, who reached out to me after the first episode about Mad Honey. He told me that his favorite topping to put on just about anything is honey, so hopefully his wife will listen to this episode and know what to do if anyone ever murders him. Until next time, remember that we all create our own history, so make yours delicious. Delicious.